And our scripture this morning is in 1 Thessalonians, if you would turn there with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you, and peace. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you this morning. We humble ourselves before your holy word. Father, speak to us this morning. Open your word to us and reveal yourself to us. Mold us and shape us and make us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, take us as we are and make us what we ought to be by the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, that's it. Just the one verse for this morning, and that will be plenty. Now, now you may be thinking, seriously, just the, just the greeting? Um, let's, let's get to the, the good stuff, right? It's just a greeting. But the truth is, as we believe here at Del Cerro Baptist Church, because the Bible teaches this, every single word in this book is inspired by God. Is, is God breathed and inerrant? Every single word of this book is profitable for us. From the genealogies to the greetings of Paul's letters and others, they all have been given to us by God himself for our edification and encouragement. But not only that, it just so happens under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Paul, the apostle, was very careful and intentional with every single word that he wrote in these letters. And so we will see, my my prayer is that after this morning, that even the greetings of Paul's letters are packed with Holy Spirit-inspired truth. And here at Del Cerro Baptist Church, because we believe 2 Timothy 3.16, that every word of Scripture is God-breathed, we don't feel the need to rush through biblical books. Pastor Rudolph has been taking us through the Gospel of Matthew for the last two years, and we're now in chapter 18, and we have plenty left. And we are stronger for it, and and we understand the Gospel of Matthew, and really, the larger storyline of all of Scripture better because of it. I was talking with another pastor friend from another church this week who was lamenting the fact that his church does not teach this way. And because of that, the people don't know Scripture as well as they could. There is a time to zoom out and preach larger portions of text, and there is a time to zoom in on just a few words of Scripture like we'll do this morning and dig for gospel truth. And so, If you're new here, that's basically what we do. We preach through whole biblical books, and we preach through them verse by verse because we believe they're the Word of God. 
We don't pass over the seemingly insignificant verses, and we don't uh, skip over the texts that are hard to understand or, or hard to swallow. Our aim here is to preach the whole counsel of God, the whole Bible, because again, we believe that the Bible is the very words of God. And so that's what we'll be doing. When Pastor Rudolph preaches, as he will again in a couple of weeks, he'll continue his series in the Gospel according to Matthew. And when I preach, we'll be making our way slowly through the letter, the letters to the Zeth- the letters, the Thessalonians together. That's kind of hard to say. Thessalonians. That's that's a mouthful. So let's look at our text this morning. First Thessalonians chapter one, verse one. What does the greeting of this letter have? To tell us. Well, the first couple of words, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. This is a letter from Paul and his companions, Silvanus and Timothy, to the church that is in Thessalonica, which is in modern-day Greece. It's very near and close to the church in Philippi, um, the letter to the Philippians. So they're kind of neighboring cities a little bit, kind of in the realm of Athens as well. Now, 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 that may seem, may seem obvious that this is a letter, um, or if you're new to the church and you're new to the Bible, that may not seem obvious, but this is really important for how we read this book. Again, contained within Scripture are various genres and various different types of literature, and what type of literature it is impacts how we understand it and how we interpret it. Letters have a context. So, 1 Thessalonians is not a doctrinal dissertation. It's not a historical narrative. It's not a poem. It's not a song. It's a letter written from a group of church planners to one of the churches that they have planted. So to understand this letter, we need to understand as as much as we can about the authors, as much as we can about the church they're writing to, as much as we can about what is going on at the time. So how do we find that information? And and as you read through the letters in the New Testament, this is always the best thing to do. We go to the book of Acts. Because in the book of Acts, we find the story of the planting of most of the churches that we have letters written to in our Bibles. So often, I think, we often forget that the order that the books of the Bible come in in the New Testament is not the chronological order, right? So Thessalonians actually was written chronologically in the middle of the book of Acts. That's really important to understand. The the letters in the New Testament are not chronological. So Paul and Peter and the other epistles and and, uh, the other apostles are writing these letters. Most of the letters contained in the New Testament are written and finished and sent and read in the churches before the end of the book of Acts, not after. And so what we can deduce from the book of Acts is that this first letter to the Thessalonians was written around AD 50. So the year 50, give or take a little bit, less than 20 years after Christ's death and resurrection, his gospel is already spreading throughout the world by the grace of God. And this letter was most likely written to the church in Thessalonica by Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy around maybe six months after they had planted the church there in Thessalonica. It is also most likely the earliest of all of Paul's letters that we have. So what's the story of the church of the Thessalonians? Well, let's, we're going to look at the book of Acts to see this, but Paul 
formerly known as, of, as Saul, was a Jewish rabbi who was persecuting Christians, you may know, until he had a radical conversion as he was on the road to Damascus. The Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him. He was radically converted. After this, he spends about three years learning and teaching in Damascus and Arabia. After that, that period of kind of understanding scripture again through the lens of Jesus Christ, he, he makes his way down to the church in Jerusalem, which was kind of the, the origin and hub of the church in those days. He consults with the other apostles to make sure that he's teaching the same things that they are, finds out he is, and then the church of Jerusalem sends him out as a missionary church planter. He spends about a couple of years on the road planting churches, and then he returns. He kind of circles around, returns to Jerusalem, settles in Antioch to rest and teach for a while, and then they send him out on another missionary journey. So the second missionary journey. It's on that journey that Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy plant the church in Thessalonica. So they, let's turn your Bibles to Acts 17. Let's, let's read the story of the founding of the church in Thessalonica. Just to give a little bit of context, this comes right after they plant the church in Philippi. They preach the gospel. They're beaten and thrown in jail and kind of run out of town. And they head out of Philippi to Thessalonica. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Let's read. This is quite a story. Here's what it says. Now when they, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So just a little bit of historical context. There was a lot of Jews in Thessalonica at the time. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So again, the scriptures in this context being the Old Testament, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, for Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying to the Jews in the synagogue, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, is the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Silvanus and Silas is the same name, by the way. It's just Latin version and a Greek version. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a, a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, sounds familiar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers, so some of the other believers, before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. You can see what they're doing. They're trying to get them charged with treason and executed. And the people in the city, authorities, were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And so eventually then the church sends Paul, Timothy, and Silas out saying, get out of here before there's more trouble. So they head out. But look at verse 13 in Acts chapter 17. Kind of gives us a flavor for the city that the church was planted in, in Thessalonian, in Thessalonica. Verse 13. So Paul, Silas, and Timothy now are in Berea, which is 
I don't know, I think it's about 50 or 60 miles from Thessalonica. Okay, so again, on foot, that's quite a journey. They're preaching there, and here's what happens. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. So again, the, the, the Jews of Thessalonica were not happy with Paul's teaching. They were so upset by it, in fact, that even when Paul, they find out he's preaching 60 miles away, they make the journey there just to disturb him more. And so this is the context that the church of Thessalonica is living in, okay? So imagine how that must be. You now are a part of a church that at the planting of the church, there was riots and uproars, and they dragged one of the people of the church out and took money from them. This is not a nice place to be a Christian. They were experiencing, Paul says later in 1 Thessalonians, he says, you receive the word in much affliction. This was, this was a high cost to become a part of the church of Thessalonica, which we'll see as we continue in our series. That's the context. This is not a peaceful, accepting, loving place to be a Christian. The church is under fire from day one. Paul eventually is separated from Silas and Timothy. Paul goes to Athens. Silas and Timothy stay in Berea. Eventually, Paul, Silas, and Timothy meet up again in Athens. They're anxious about the state of the church in Thessalonica. I mean, imagine as a church planner, you're there for a couple months, you're chased out of town due to persecution, and there's no social media. So he, he doesn't know what's happening to the church. He's wondering, are they surviving? Has my work been in vain? So Paul sends Timothy to Thessalonica. He, he's kind of banned from the city. So he sends Timothy to check up on the church. Timothy meets with the church in Thessalonica, kind of gathers how they're doing, encourages them, exhorts them, returns to Paul and Silas in Corinth, tells them how the church is going, and then at that time is when Paul writes this letter that we are looking at today, 1 Thessalonians. He gives it to Timothy. Timothy goes back to Thessalonica and reads this to the church. By the way, the journey from Corinth to Thessalonica is about 260 miles. <laughs> This is, this is not in a matter of days. This is taking months to get back and forth. It's very dangerous. But, but here's what would happen in the early church with letters like these. So imagine, try to, try to place yourself the best you can. It's Sunday morning. You're a member of the Thessalonian congregation. You're, you're heading to gather for worship. And the news had spread, right, that, that Timothy is, is back in Thessalonica. He's returned to give news and not only that, this time he has a letter from the Apostle Paul himself to your church. Imagine the anticipation as you, as you gathered to hear it read aloud. You, you've probably at this time experienced persecution yourself. Maybe you, you've known family members or brothers and sisters in the Lord who've experienced persecution. You've pledged your life to Messiah Jesus and you've already begun to pay the price. But here the church is gathered probably sing a psalm or two. They offer prayers together to God. And then Timothy stands up, opens the scroll. You can imagine the hush that falls over the congregation as they hear from their beloved apostle Paul. And the first words they hear are these, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. So for the rest of our time together this morning, I want to break 
down this phrase, phrase by phrase. These are not just empty words. These are not cliches that Paul gives. These are words of life to the struggling church. And so as we've seen, the authors here, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. So Paul, the apostle, commissioned by Jesus Christ himself, Silvanus or Silas, who was a prophet and a prominent leader in the Jerusalem church, and Timothy, Paul's apprentice. The Thessalonians knew these men. They had learned the faith from them, and they had seen them persecuted. They had suffered with these men. They loved these men. They were, they were loved dearly by them. They had a history together. And so let's, let's look at the next phrase, to the church of the Thessalonians. The church of the Thessalonians. Now, this may sound like a basic question, but this, we have to answer it. What is a church? Now, the word translated church here was not invented by Christians. It it was in use long before the New Testament. The Greek word ecclesia simply means assembly, gathering, congregation. Um, It's just used in sometimes in Greek language of of when the... um, the, the Greek political body would gather together. It was called the Ecclesia. In the Greek Old Testament, it is used of Israel when Israel gathers together. So, for example, Deuteronomy 31.30 says, Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly of Israel. That word, the assembly in the Greek, is Ecclesia. You could, if you wanted to, say in the ears of all the church of Israel. Same word. Now, why is this important? Why, why does this matter, right? Because fundamental to the idea of a church is the gathering itself. Fundamental to the idea of the church is the gathering itself. The church is the gathering. The church is the congregation. The church is not a building. Okay? The church in Thessalonica certainly didn't have a building. They were hanging out in Jason's house. It is the assembly of believers under the care of pastors and under the authority of Jesus Christ himself. That is what a church is. It is the gathering of believers in Messiah Jesus, the the assembly, the the congregation. Now, it gets a little tricky because there is, kind of in our modern day, the way we use the word, there is the church, like capital C, the church, and then there are churches, little c, local churches. Churches. So there is the church of Christ, by which we mean all true believers of all time, all over the world. And, and that church, the church, will only gather on that final day when we gather before the throne after all things are finished. That's, that's kind of the capital C church. That is, by the way, what the Nicene Creed means, as we said together, when it says one holy Catholic and apostolic church. It doesn't mean the Roman Catholic church. Catholic, the word, simply means universal. One, holy, universal, and apostolic church. All true believers are part of that church. So when we say that together, we are confessing to be a part of the same church as Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, part of the same church as the church of the Thessalonians. But there's also the the little c church. So Del Cerro Baptist Church is a church. It's not the church, but it's a church. It's part of the church. There's new life. Presbyterian Church across the street. There's First Baptist Church of Thessalonica. Uh, local expressions. So, so these bodies are 
local expressions of the universal church, united by faith in Christ Jesus. The church, little c, is a glorious and gracious gift of God to us. And, and as I was thinking on this this week, as I, as I was meditating on this text this week, here's something I, I realized, something I was thinking about. Our view of the church, of what church is, often falls far short of the biblical view of church. Often today, church is thought of as is something that is, that is optional, right? It's something you go to if you have time, if you don't have other plans. It's nice, uh, but you know, if there's something else to do, it's okay. It's important. I mean, we have, it doesn't even really strike us as that strange when we meet someone, I met someone like this just the other day, uh, who professes to be a believer in Messiah Jesus, and hey, where do you go to church? And, uh, not really into that sort of thing. Um, I just, I've got my Bible and I believe in Jesus. That's enough, right? That doesn't even strike us as that strange. That's the sad thing. But the Apostle Paul and his companions, they would have not have even had a category for that. If they had met a professing Christian who told them they weren't a part of a church, they probably would have just stood there like this. Like, what? Huh? Like that, that does not compute. That doesn't work. You can't, profaith, you, can't, you can't profess faith in Jesus and yet not gather with Christ's body. But these two things are, are mutually exclusive under all normal circumstances. A, a churchless Christian does not exist in the New Testament. Our thinking about faith and belief in Christ has become far too individualistic. In, in Scripture, Christians were not thought of as, as individuals primarily, but rather as gatherings. To, to get saved, right, biblically, is not just about your own eternal destiny, your own personal relationship with Jesus. Scripture doesn't really use that language. It's, it's not about you accepting Jesus it's about a person switching their allegiance from one group to another group, from the world to the church, from, from the, as Colossians says, we'll see later, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the sun. It's about group identity. It's not about individual salvation primarily and only. It's about a person going from the world to the gathering of Messiah. The Bible knows such thing as an individual Christian that is not part of the gathering. To have faith in Jesus Christ is to gather with his body. Again, under normal circumstances, obviously there's things that happen, tornadoes and pandemics and things that for a time make that impossible. But to be a part of a church is absolutely fundamental to being a Christian. To believe in Jesus is to gather with his people, his body, the church. Biblically, and we'll see this in a couple of weeks when we get back to Matthew 18, to be outside the church is to be outside of Jesus Christ himself. See, when Paul, Silas, and Timothy preached in Thessalonica, they weren't just doing evangelism. They planted a church. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus Christ did not say, I will build my 
individualistic group of independent believers who each believe what they want and whose faith is their own private matter. He said, I will build my church. It's not individuals who are the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is fundamental and necessary for all biblically faithful Christians, brothers and sisters. We need the church. You need the church. I need the church. We need the accountability. We need the shepherding. We need the ordinances that we'll partake in later this morning. We need the fellowship. We need to gather regularly to hear the gospel preached. We need one another to even be able to obey what God has commanded us in the scriptures. All of these are vital for our faith. The church is vital for our faith. Let me, let me get a little more specific. If you are here this morning as a believer in Jesus Christ, I will assume two things about you that I hope are true. Number one, that you want to grow in your faith and sanctification. And number two, that you want to be protected from going astray, from apostasy, from being led and deceived into sin. What the Bible teaches us, that it's primarily through the church that God does these things. It is primarily through the ministry of the church that God grows us in our faith. And it is primarily through the church that God protects us from straying. We see both of these truths clearly in Ephesians 4, chapter, or Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. Here's what the Apostle Paul says about the church. Speaking specifically in this instance to the church in Ephesus. And he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints, that's the church, for the work of ministry. For why? For the building up, for building up the body of Christ, the church. Until, so this is taking place until we all believers attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, in other words, to mature faith, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay, so there's your first part. Your growth in faith, your growth in sanctification has been, God. that's why God has given the church these leaders and has given the church the fellowship of the saints to do these things that we may all attain to maturity. He's equipping the church to do that. And then, number two, to be protected from apostasy, here's the so that. So that we're we're growing in our faith so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You, You see the two things there. The church, God is equipping the church. God's given leaders to the church. God's given the congregation to build one another up so that we may all attain maturity so that we will not be led astray. This is the ministry of the church, the body. And we'll see this even more when we get back into Matthew and Matthew 18. We see this also in 1 Corinthians 5, which we don't have time to go into. To be outside the church on your own is to be like a child, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and, and open to, Paul says, human cunning and deception. It is through the church, again, we'll see in Matthew 18, that God protects and seeks his straying sheep. So practically speaking, if you are not a member of a church, 
should join one. Join ours. Join another biblically faithful church. Just join a church. If you, if you want more, membership, more information on membership or baptism or anything like that, one of the pastors, I, Josh, Dustin, would love to talk with you after the service. And we'd even love, this is how much we want you to be a part of a church. We don't care if you're a member here. We'd love to give you a list of recommendations of solid gospel preaching churches in La Mesa and the surrounding areas. We know many good churches. But for the sake of your faith, you must join a church. And let me just say, too, to our live streamers, the camera's over there, by the way. So if you see me looking over there. Uh, to our live streamers out there, if, if you're live streaming from some, from some other location, you know, some other state, some other city, some other country, um, we appreciate that. Feel free to keep watching the live stream. I pray that it's edifying to you, but this is not your church. Simply because you can't gather with us. We can't shepherd you. We can't fellowship with you. You can't partake of the Lord's Supper with us. And so our encouragement to you is keep live streaming, keep learning, but join a church that you are able to attend and have fellowship with and pastoral care, partake of the elements with them. If you need help finding one, again, we'd love to help you with that. To be a part of a gospel preaching church is absolutely essential to the faith of every believer in Christ. Let's look back at our text. Verse 1, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Notice the preposition. So much theology is contained in prepositions. In. The church is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean? One commentator puts it this way. This, it, listen to what he says on this preposition in. He says, Paul sought to link the Christian community in Thessalonica to both God and Christ because it had its origin in divine activity. Its existence was to be determined by God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and its members were to live out their lives in the presence of the divine. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the church has its origin in the divine activity of God the Father, and the church lives and worships in the presence of God. This is, this is not something to skip over because this is not just true of the Thessalonian church. This is true of every true church. The, the big C church and every little C church owes its existence to the divine activity of God himself. We are not the ones ultimately building the church. We are not the ones ultimately planting Churches, according to this verse and others, it's God. It's Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate church planter. Remember, he didn't say, you will build my church. He said, I will build my church. The church, Del Cerro Baptist Church, owes its existence to the activity of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we'll see more of that next week as we continue further on in chapter 1. But as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3, we, we, the congregation, not the building, we, not us as individuals, we, church, are the temple of the living God. 
in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The church, this church, was founded by God for his glory and for our salvation. Let us never forget that. It's not your church. It's not my church. It's God's church. It's Christ's church. We, Del Cerro Baptist Church, are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way that the Thessalonian church was. That should shape everything we do here, from how we act with one another, to what we do in worship, to how we conduct ourselves. But, but the church is not just in God, it's in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The fatherhood of God and the lordship of Messiah Jesus. There's two huge concepts that we don't have time to fully go into. But, but my concern with these concepts is that we get so familiar with them, we get hear them so often, God is our Father, Jesus is the Christ, he's Lord, that we often take them for granted. We kind of just skim right over that, and it doesn't even impact us. But, but let's just pause for a second on, on the idea of God as Father. We take this for granted so often. We think of God as Father of humanity in general. We think of humanity just in the language of the culture as the children of God, right? That's not how the Bible speaks. You see, the idea of, of God as Father is actually in the Old Testament is very rare. God is not called Father very much at all. It's, it's there in, I think, maybe 10 verses, but, but just barely. God was not commonly thought of this way, at least not in the way we think now. And according to Scripture, no one is naturally a child of God. It's actually quite the opposite. Paul, writing in Ephesians chapter 2, says that outside of Jesus Christ, we are children of wrath and sons of disobedience because of our sin and rebellion against God. So in general with humanity, God is not father, but judge. Everyone who denies Jesus Christ is, is outside of the family of God. This is the testimony of the scriptures. So, so that's, the, that's the bad news about that. But the good news is this. Out of his great love for his people, God the Father sends his son, Messiah Jesus, in fulfillment of the scriptures. Jesus, he lives a perfect life, pleasing to his Father in every way. He gives up his life on a Roman cross, shedding his blood, Acts 20, 28 says, for the church, and he rose again, thereby conquering sin, death, and the devil. And through this, God the Father now has exalted his son, Jesus Christ, as King and Lord over all creation. And for those who will turn from their sin, from the world, turn to Jesus Christ, place their faith, their allegiance, submit to him as Lord and Savior, not only will you be forgiven of your sin, you will become the sons and daughters of God, adopted into the family of God, adopted by God the Father. And so as once God was not father to you, when your faith is placed in Jesus Christ, God becomes father to you, and Jesus becomes a brother. There are many texts that talk about this, this glorious idea of adoption. 
I want to look at a couple of them just quickly. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Again, listen to what this says. But to all who did receive him, Jesus Christ, who received and accepted his lordship, who believed, who put their faith in him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So child of God is not something you are, it's something you become. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. By God's will, you're adopted into his family. Galatians 4, which we heard earlier, 4, 4 through 7. <laughs> this, this is such an awesome passage. But when the fullness of time had come, so in other words, this, this was the plan from eternity past, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive, it's not something we earn, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And if you're wondering, as a side note, why it doesn't say sons and daughters, why is this male language? Actually, it's really important why it says sons, because the son in the first century, oh, easy. The son in first century culture was the one who received the inheritance. So even though we are male and female, we are all adopted as sons because we all receive the inheritance. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, now that we are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. We have the same inheritance as Christ Jesus himself. And we live and are forgiven in Christ our King. So so how have we come to this? Colossians 1, verse 12 through 14. Give thanks to the Father. Again, same language. We give thanks to the Father. What has he done? Who has qualified you? Were you qualified for this? No way. The Father has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He, God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's where we once lived and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the work of God. Brothers and sisters, there is no higher privilege on earth or anywhere else than to be adopted into the family of God. Not as a slave, as a son. As a son. As a co-heir with Christ, Paul says in Romans. Hebrews says that Christ calls us brothers and sisters. And in fact, the only reason that we can call each other brother and sister is because we have the same father, God the Father. We have been adopted into his family. And if you, by the grace and power of God, have placed your faith, your allegiance in Jesus as Lord and Savior, then God is now your father. And Jesus Christ is your brother, and we are your family. And that reality is more real than our, even our physical families. You have more in common with the believer in Zambia, Africa, whom you've never met than with your own unbelieving brother or sister. This is your family. What more do we need? 
That is what the church is. We gather in the presence of God, by the will of God, to worship God. And, and I understand that, that not everyone has good earthly fathers. And, and so sometimes thinking of God as father is hard for some people. And so in that case, in all of our cases, it's really important to let the Bible dictate what that means and to, to kind of work through some of those issues. God is, a, as the popular song says, a good, good father, a perfect father. So we have to be careful not to put the sins of our fathers onto God. Jesus Christ is not just our brother, though. He's also our Lord. Look again at verse 1. In God, the Father, and the Lord, Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means that in everything we do as a church and as individuals, we submit ourselves to the rule and direction of Lord Jesus. We live in his kingdom, under his reign, and we live our lives according to his commandments. He is our everything. He is our life. To confess that Jesus is Lord is to confess that you are not. To confess that Jesus is Lord is to confess that Jesus is the ruler of the world, the head over all things, every physical being, every spiritual being in the universe. All creatures must bow before the Lord and King of all creation. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he is ruling and reigning now both over the church and the world. And all of our life then must be submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's, that's not optional. We don't get to pick and choose which commands of Christ we want to obey. It's not a burden, it's our privilege and our joy to follow our Savior King. What this means is that everything we do, brothers and sisters, is to be done in the Lord. If you take that phrase, in the Lord, and you, you see how it's used in Scripture, it encompasses all of life. We are to hope in the Lord. We are to trust in the Lord. We are brothers and sisters in the Lord. We have been chosen in the Lord. We are to work and serve in the Lord. We are to rejoice in the Lord. Pastors are over the flock in the Lord. We are to be strong in the Lord. We are to boast in the Lord. We are to receive one another in the Lord. We are to stand firm in the Lord. We are to greet one another in the Lord. We are to encourage one another in the Lord. We, the church, are being built up into a holy temple in the Lord. We are to marry in the Lord. And yes, Revelation 14, we will die, thank the Lord, in the Lord. Why? Because Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He is the Lord. And, and by the way, that's true whether you believe it or not. Right? So, so just saying, you know, this isn't in my notes, but just like saying President Trump is not the president, that doesn't make him not the president, right? It's still true. Saying I reject Jesus as Lord because I've had these conversations with people. Well, I don't believe in Jesus, so God won't judge me according to that. That's not true. Jesus is Lord whether or not you believe it. 
We don't, I know we use this language and I understand what we mean by it, but we don't make Jesus Lord of our life. He is Lord. We either accept that or reject it, and that will determine our eternal destiny. But Jesus is Lord of all. And so really to this, to what we've seen here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, there, there, there are only two responses. Many applications, but, but two responses. The first is this. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you're not a believer. Maybe you've never thought about it. Maybe you have thought about it and you reject it. Maybe you were brought up in the faith, but then you walked away. Your, your faith is not in Christ. Or, or maybe you say that it is, but, but really you're, you're not living in obedience to Christ. You're not really even trying. Your life shows no evidence of the Lordship of Christ. This morning, my prayer for you and my call to you is that you would turn from your sin, that you would see the futile, the futility of your sin, you would see the emptiness of your sin, you would see the wickedness of your sin, and that you would turn from this life of selfishness and place your faith in Jesus Christ. That you would respond to him in faith and repentance this morning and enter into eternal life. That you would enter by faith into the family of God, by the grace of God and for the glory of God. This is God's call today. All who respond in faith will be welcomed. And if you want to talk more about this after, I'm available. Again, Josh is available, Dustin's available, and a lot of other people here would love to talk to you about that. So that's the first response. Secondly, you're here this morning. You are a believer. Your faith is in Lord Jesus. The only response is worship. Let us respond in song. Let us respond. We'll take the Lord's Supper together, which is the institution given, not to individuals, but to the church. We'll celebrate our fellowship together. Celebrate the presence of Christ among us. Let us respond by living lives that are worthy of this great calling that we have. Let us respond in full obedience to our Lord and Savior. Let us respond by, by hating and killing the sin that is in our lives. Let us respond in infinite gratitude to the Lord who has made us and taken us as his own. The church in Thessalonica was under fire. The people of the city hated them. They were experiencing persecution. And so Paul begins his first letter to them with these wonderful words that we've just heard. And to their ears, just a gospel balm over their weary hearts. They're just as relevant to us as they were 2,000 years ago to that small band of believers gathering in Jason's house. God knew we needed to be reminded of these things this morning, and God knew that we needed to hear the last few words of verse 1. So here's how Paul ends his address after proclaiming these truths. Grace to you and peace. His prayer is this, may the grace and peace that is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone be with you all.
this morning. That's Paul's prayer for the Thessalonian church, and that is my prayer for us as well. Grace to you and peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have shown us many things this morning. And so, Father, we respond with thankful hearts. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have adopted us into your family. We thank you for the church, for our brothers and sisters. Father, we ask that you forgive us when we have taken these things for granted. We ask that you forgive us when we have had a low view the church, when we have had a low view of Jesus Christ, when we have had a low view of your role as Father in our lives. Father, renew these things in our hearts and minds by your word this morning. And Father, I pray for anyone this morning who is not, has not received Christ as Lord. Father, would you work in their heart this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit? Give them the faith to see Jesus as Lord and Savior. Pray this in his name. Amen.